Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I'm doing really well. Thank you. Um, I'm delighted to be here today, and I hope you are as well. And we're very thankful that you came. I know that uh, you're probably like me. You've seen a lot of Facebook posts or other things of people on warm, sandy beaches. And you're beginning to wonder, why am I not there? But you're in a good spot too. So we're extremely glad that you're here this morning. Welcome to Midland Free. Um, 1992. Perhaps some of you remember that year. I know I did, and it's when I went from about right here to about right here. (laughs) In a very short space of time, I uh, covered a lot of ground. I grew. I hit my growth spurt somewhere between 8th and ninth grade. And at the time, I was playing soccer, and uh, that was not so significant, but what happened is that some of the basketball coaches noticed as well. They thought, whoa. Here is a very young man who is growing like a weed, and if he keeps this up, we're going to have a seven-foot center by the end of his sophomore year. This is good news. And so, before long, some of the basketball coaches approached me, and it wasn't because I was a great athlete. They just saw someone who could fill a role. And before long, uh, I played, and they realized I was really actually not that good at all at basketball. And they started to look at the team roster and they already had a center and they realized, but we do need a backup player. We need someone to go in and give the foul so our main guy doesn't get in foul trouble and we need someone to take the hit and do stuff like that. So, uh, Lobdell, come on over. I'm like, yeah, what is it, coach? He said, I need you to gain 20 pounds by the end of the summer if you want to make the team. You need to, next year, if you want to come out, you need to hit the weights hard this summer and you got to come back ready to play, and I need to, I need to see it on your body. you got to be ready to go. I was like, yes, sir. Right away, coach. So that summer, I gave up all my other former, you know, delights of sleeping in and eating all kinds of junk food as, and enjoying teenage things, and I got real disciplined, and I started going to the gym and spending hours there every day. I was too young to work, so I might as well. And that's what I did, and it worked. And by the end of the summer... I gained the 20 pounds and I came back and the coach put me on the team. And obviously I never went anywhere after that. But I learned the discipline of hard work and the results. And basically what I learned from that experience right away is that um, sometimes, most often I would say, that the discipline and hard work is really worth it. And if you're, if you're going to go for it, you got to realize that in order to make it happen, in order to make the cut, you're going to have to give something up. You're going to ha- something's going to have to go. You're going to have to make a change if you want to make the team. Because there is a cut, and Christianity, in a similar way, functions. In other words, what I mean is everybody can become a Christian, but if you really want to play, you're going to have to be willing to sacrifice in order to make the cut. Today, as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, what we're going to see is the Apostle Paul kind of detailing some of his sacrifices. You know, he's on the team, but he says, hey, I want to play. And so there's some things I'm going to have to give up in order to make the cut. If I want to do more than just sit the bench, if I want to do more than just watch everybody else, I'm going to have to be disciplined. I'm going to have to sacrifice. And so the Apostle is going to outline that for us. And uh, basically... Uh, what I want to do before we get there is a couple of things. One, I want to remind you of where we've been. Two, I want to show you where we're going. 
And then three, I want to give you the context of today's passage. So just by way of review or to help you remember where we're at in 1 Corinthians is basically like this. We've titled this book study um, The Church and basically we've said all in and moving forward. You're the church and we want you on the team and we want you all in and moving forward. We want that for you and I think you will be most well served by that as well. And so the way we are moving through then, we've looked at the book and we saw the first thing that Paul does is he just lines out for us our identity in Christ and says, this is who you are, now I want you to live up to it. So the first thing for us is to live up to the high calling we have in Christ Jesus. After that he spends a little bit of time explaining how important unity is to us as a body, that we get in the boat and just row, row, row and all pull together in the same direction. And then he moves from unity to holiness. In the holiness section, obviously, you're in Corinth. It's kind of the um, red light district of the Middle East, if you will. And as a result, they are emphasizing sexual purity in their sanctification. In other words, your personal holiness is in a large part determined by how you control your sexual drive and how you uh, follow God's design for that uh, created aspect of your being. Then we moved on to the freedom and responsibility section, which is basically should versus could. And in that section, uh, we talked about what will bring God the most glory. Um, Would it be if I ate meat or if I did not? And then this week, this week, we're following that same section, the should versus could. And we're moving into now the topic of money. And the Apostle Paul is just going to use himself as an example And he's going to say, should versus could, you know, I could, but should, and what is the best way to advance the gospel? So the way he'll do that then is he structured this passage basically like this. He said, here's my rights. Here's the things that I have. This is the uh, first point of today. We have the the right. Paul is going to line it up in a threefold fashion. He's going to say my rights, my reasons, and my prize. So the first thing he's going to do is say in verses 1 through 15, here are my rights. And then in 16 through 23, here are my reasons. And then in the last one, here's my prize. Here's what I'm after. So rights, reason, and prize. So then let's talk about the context of 1 Corinthians. You know it's a um, kind of an uh, interesting city. One of the things about ministering in that city is that any minister has to be aware of the fact that at some point he either has to come up with his own financial support or other people are going to have to provide that for him. And I can remember having graduated seminary going off to my uh, first church position. I was very green around the collar and it was a small town, uh, which means a small church and a few very influential people in that small community. And so I went into this setting and I began to, you know, as a young guy would, just go for it, right? Like not even thinking about any of the political implications or powers that be. You're just like, we're going to change this world for Christ, right? Jump in. Let's go. Here we go. And uh, we started to look at the service and particularly the order of the service because we noticed it was dragging on by the time we got to the actual worship and then the sermon everybody was tired and worn out and we realized that's because we spent the first 
30 minutes of the service just about having a town hall meeting. We would do an announcement section and it wasn't a nice crisp video or testimony. Instead, it was anybody want to say anything, you know, and people get up and they talk and they share. And then it's prayer request time and people get up and they talk and they share. And it just goes on and on and on. And eventually some of the guys in the back row are just like, oh, when is my golf game coming? You know, and everybody's getting worn out, worn out, worn out. And then eventually we get to the time of the sermon. And so we said, you know what? The purpose of the worship service is to glorify God, focus on him, worship him, respond to him and proclaim his truth. So let's try to rearrange things to reflect that and put less emphasis on the local gossip and a little more on the universal gospel. Okay, so here we go. So we rearrange things and all of a sudden, you know, most people are really happy and some came forward and thanked me. Hey, boy, this is a lot better now. And it's really made things a lot more smooth. and We really like it. But then I got the visit from the worship committee chair and she came into my office one day and she said, um, you know, can I have a word with you? Well, sure. Come on in. Let's chat. You know, and she walks up and she says, um, you know, about the service order. I'm like, yeah, it's working pretty good. Seems like we're worshiping. People are focused. They're coming out energized. She's like, yeah. and I'm like, yeah, what? <laughs> and she's like, well, some folks have been talking. I'm like, some folks have been talking. Who? Well, I can't really mention any names. Well, of course you can't. <laughs> Okay, who? Well, let me just tell you, I assure you, they're important. And if, you know, things don't go back to the way they were, they might sort of disappear. And I'm like, okay, so they might sort of disappear. (laughs) And she's like, no, 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 don't you understand? If they disappear, this will affect our offerings. I said, ah, so that's the way it is. Okay, all right, let's, let's see how this goes. So the next Sunday comes, you know, it's a tradition, a little more traditional than we are. And all the pastors and elders sit up front and it's time for the offering. They bring the plates forward in the doxology place and we grab the plates, bring them back. And one of the guys who's uh, serving that day, not an elder, but he was serving, uh, he brings the plate back to me. He looks me straight in the eyes, reaches in, pulls out his tithe and looks at me like this and goes, I'm like, okay, I get the message. (laughs) You've sent that loud and clear. In other words, you do what I want, you don't. Boom. Back in the pocket it goes. I said, wow. Okay. And then I preached my sermon. <laughs> Hellfire and brimstone all the way. No. no, it was a normal sermon. And then I went back to my house and boy, I was burning inside. And I was just like, you know what? I am going to sink this ship before I give in to that. Not over my dead body. I am going to burn this place to the ground, metaphorically speaking, before I give in to anything like that. You can send me packing. I'm just not going to be manipulated like that. And sure enough, you know, we went through our hard times and, and we made the adjustments and the church came through and God provided and there are good people in those communities as well. But it's interesting to watch how that works. And as I look at this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I see Paul walking through a very similar path. 
What I see is this, is I see a group of people in Corinth, and you know Corinth is 50% slaves. That means there's great economic disparity. There's a few very influential people. It's a small community. It's a small church. And so there are probably some very big givers who are highly influential. And they're in that congregation, and Paul comes to minister there, and they're like, hey, Paul, here it is. What are you going to do? The Apostle Paul reaches into the plate, pulls it out, and hands it back to him. Says, I don't need it. No thanks. I'll see you later. And the rest of his ministry then is defined by his part-time night shift job of tent making. Because he is like, I would rather burn this place to the ground than be controlled by that junk. There's no way you are going to control or influence my call and my ministry with your money. It's not going to happen. You do not get to make those decisions, nor do I. God calls me. I proclaim. I obey. Thanks for your money. See you later. So the apostle just says, nope, I I ain't going to take it. I would rather work the night shift at McDonald's than actually accept your money. And he gives it back. Well, that's a pretty strong statement to us, but to the influential members of the congregation and the small town community, they're not done. <laughs> they're like, whoa, this, this isn't the end of this, Paul. Hold on, we are going to come right back at you. If our money's not enough, we'll find other ways to influence the system. And so the way they do it is once he's out of town, they say, you know what, guys? He didn't accept our uh, financial support while he's here. You know what that means? Sort of the school of rock reasoning, if you will. Those who can, do. Those who can't, teach. And those who can't teach, teach PE. In other words, no offense. This is school of rock, right? If you could, you would. If you were actually an apostle, like the other apostles, you would accept support. Therefore, it proves to us that you are not a real apostle. See that? You don't accept money, so that means you're not the real deal. We know you're not a real minister of the gospel because you will not accept support like all the other guys do. Therefore, you must be a fake. Chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, the apostle is going to address that issue. Now that he's away from the church, now that he's planted them, now that he's founded them, now he's set up this ministry philosophy based on basically raising his own support... um, They're going to try to undercut him. And this is his response. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and follow along with me. If you're using a church Bible and didn't bring one of your own, you can find this on page 1216 of the Blue Bible. This is the ninth chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians. It's a good good lengthy chapter. I'm just going to read the whole thing so you want to follow along. If you're... In your electronic Bible, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you're on the actual print one, it's page 1216. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. The apostle addressing their accusation says, What? Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you yourselves not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal 
of my apostleship in the Lord. This then in verse 3, this is my apologia, this is my apologetic, this is my apology, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Here it comes. Are you guys ready for this? What? Don't we have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as the other apostles and the brothers of our Lord and uh, Cephas, that's uh, Peter, do? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Moreover, do I say these things only on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because we, the plowmen, should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing the crop. Now, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar, the share in the sacrificial offering. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But, you're right. I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as to not make full use of my right in the gospel? For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more. Now here's some examples of that. To the Jew, I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. Though, of course, myself, not being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside, I became as one on the outside. Of course, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. Now, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Now, here, verse 23, here's the main point. Here's the reason for all of this. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Now, finally, the prize that he's after. Do you not know that in a race, all the race, racers, all, the, all in the race run? <laughs> But only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I should be, quali- should be disqualified myself. So in other words, Paul's point is this, is look, guys, 
you're undercutting the ministry here by challenging my authority. But let me make it very clear. I could rightfully demand financial support from you. As an apostle, I could do that. I could. But I'm asking myself the question whether or not I should. Could versus should. I could, but should I? And where he lands, obviously, is that he should not. And it doesn't necessarily mean that he's anything less of an apostle, but instead he's saying, I gave it up, I chose not to, in order to gain something more. In other words, I give it up, I do it all, for the sake of the gospel. Now let's look at his reasoning a little more closely. The first one I said, the first point for today is Paul's rights. Paul's rights. Um, From every angle, no matter how you look at it, Paul has the right to earn a living. You know, the first question, the first rhetorical question he asks is, am I not an apostle? And then he goes through this list and you can pretty much uh, tick every box. You can check them off. He says, hey, have I not, you know, have I not seen the Lord? Yes, I've seen the Lord in the flesh. Um, And moreover, if, if I am not an apostle, then what does that make you? Because you are the church that I founded based on my apostleship. If I'm a phony and I'm a fake, then you're a phony and you're a fake too. I birthed you. You are from me. And so you decide what you want to be because the implications for discrediting my apostleship discredits you as a church as well. Am I not an apostle? I've seen the Lord. I founded you. Moreover, why in the world would I be singled out? Look, Peter and all the rest, They're given their rights. Why would you go after me? I am an apostle. Moreover, that's point one. He says, moreover, I'm an apostle. Moreover, common sense, folks. Come on. Everybody makes a living. If you don't, you die. You have to earn money somehow. And if you look around, everybody who works earns their wages. Look around you and you see even, you know, from the upper echelons all the way down to the bottom, you got to get paid. Otherwise, you simply can't provide for your family. Whether they are a soldier, whether they are a farmer, whether they're in livestock or cattle production or whatever, it doesn't matter. Everybody gets some of the profit sharing. If you don't, you can't earn a living. It's just common sense. Preachers have to eat too. So do their families. Folks, look, bottom line, I'm an apostle. Common sense dictates it. And if that's not good enough, the Bible says so. (laughs) You know, the law commands that the ox should eat his grain. It's very simple. And if the Lord cares about some stupid animal who's not made in the image of God, think about how much more he cares about you. So I'm a real apostle. Everybody makes money. And the Lord commands that you provide. So in every way, every way, he has a right to make a living by preaching the gospel. Now, what would be fun for me is to stop right here and begin to say, all right, folks, pull out your wallets. <laughs> Here we go. I'm looking at Facebook and I'm seeing all kinds of, you know, Caribbean vacations and nice things like that. And I'm thinking, wow, it's bonus time, right? Show me the money. Bring it. Here we go. Uh, ushers, come forward. Let's go. You know, and indeed, there are preachers like this and they'll start quoting those verses out of context and say, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. And then they say under the breath, and I love a cheerful giver, too. And they keep going. And then they're like, you know, do you want to curry God's favor? Do you want the Lord to love you more? Do you want the Lord to bless you? Then show me the money, right? Operators are standing by. Call now. Cash or credit card accepted. 
Folks, I'm feeling like the Holy Spirit's moving in our midst. Let me see you moving as well. Reach for that wallet. Here we go. Pull it out. And they begin to work the crowds and work the crowds. And you can do that, I suppose, if you're into preaching only half the text. That's the first 15 verses. And if you stop right there, you can accurately preach it. But the problem is there's this thing called context, which includes the rest of Scripture. And as you read down further, what you actually find out is the apostle is not arguing about his right to make money, but instead his right to give up his money. He's saying, hey, you know, you're right, I've got the right, but in the end, I choose not to. That I'm giving up my right to make money. There goes the Ferrari. (laughs) Sorry, private jet. Not for me. All the rest are gone. The apostle is saying, yes, I have every right in every way, but in the end, I want to play. I want to be on the team. I want to make the cut, and I don't want anything at all to get in the way of that. So if it's meat, it's gone, whatever. If it's money, it's gone, whatever. Whatever it is, I don't care. I am willing to give it up for the sake of the gospel. And on the first part of that, on the meat factor, some of us who are less meat eaters, we could say, yeah, no big deal. But this is really hitting them in the pocket. He's saying, I am willing to work the night shift making tents in order to support myself so I don't have to take your money. Because I care so much about the gospel. This is what I'm going to do. Here's the Apostle Paul, and I think it's a, it's a great thing for us because we look at this chapter, and let me just show you a little picture of it on the screen. We ask ourselves the question, why would he do that? And I think you see all those little newspapers along the way. That's a filter I set up um, underneath the uh, Greek text that underlies our English text. And basically it's showing you every time the word gospel occurs. It's, it occurs multiple times throughout this chapter, and the, the Apostle, through the work of the Holy Spirit, is using the repetition to try to emphasize something. He wants you to realize, here's my point. The reason I'm doing this, the whole reason behind this, verse 23, is for the sake of the gospel. Over and over again, he's going to emphasize the word gospel, 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 gospel. Why? Because he is willing to do whatever it takes and give up anything he has to for the right and privilege of preaching the gospel. So, Paul's, Paul's uh, rights are to make money. Par- Paul's reason for giving it up is for the sake of the gospel. Basically, he agrees with Jesus when Jesus says, Hey, look, uh, you know, this is the treasure hidden in a field. This is the thing you want to pursue above all else. This is the pearl of great price. This is the treasure we have hidden in jars of clay. This is our all-consuming passion. This is the thing that is to drive us as a church. This is the life-saving message of Jesus Christ. That is why the apostle in this chapter says, you know what, I would rather die. I would rather die than have me, anyone deprive me of this privilege. Woe to me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And that way he falls along line with the great prophets like Amos who says, look, The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy? Jeremiah, who says in the same way, Hey, if I will not make mention of him or speak any more in his name, then there is in my heart 
as it were a burning fire shut up in my bones and I am weary of holding it back and I simply cannot. I have to. I have to preach the gospel. It is a passion that God has put there and it cannot be removed. So as we at Midland Free, we come together to do all these things as a group. And we do things like, for example, we reach out through our missions, missions uh, outreach. And we do things like for the Malay. And we come to them and we say, hey, we have something special for you. And it's not just for our sake, for a cross-cultural experience. But we have something unique to offer and it's called the gospel. We go to the Tartar people and we say to them, hey, folks, you know what? We really like your music. That's cool. The whole bag and windpipe thing and ethnomusicology is great. But we're not doing it just for the sake of a cross-cultural experience. We want you to come to know Jesus. And then we go to Uganda and we help people in villages and other places and we support children. And we say, hey, we want to encourage you. We want to bless your community. We want to lift you up. But it's not just for the sake of making the world a better place. It's for the gospel. And then we go local and we send our own and we do all these things with sportsmen and children's ministry and we sing and we preach and we take communion. And the whole thing, all of it, is to represent one thing, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So once again, we come back to the umbrella, which I left behind stage, but you know what I'm talking about. The overarching umbrella, the big tent is the glory of God. The shaft that I, that I showed you earlier, that is the gospel. That's what holds it up and brings glory to God and builds the kingdom. And then all the things that splinter off that shaft, whether it's missions, whether it's local outreach, whether it's compassion, whether it's worship ministries, whether it's you know, care ministries, whether it's anything, it all has to be driven by the gospel. Because that is what fundamentally defines and separates us from anyone else. Look, there's a lot of do-gooders out there and there's nothing wrong with that. There's all kinds of civic organizations. There are all kinds of educational societies. There are service groups. There's fraternities and sororities. All kinds of things to take your time that will do good stuff. But in the end, the bottom line for us is the gospel. How does this contribute to the life-saving, life-changing message of Jesus Christ? That separates us from everyone else. Why are we not some other 5013C non-for-profit? Because we are the church of Jesus Christ. We have the keys to the kingdom, the gospel itself. And that's a big deal. So Paul's right is to earn money. But the reason he gives it up is for the life-changing and life-saving message of Jesus Christ. The gospel. This fundamentally defines us more than anything else. So the final thing he's going to give then is his, his, his goal or his objective, his final ends. And that he calls the prize and he's going to use the uh, analogy of a race. Now I have to think a bit creatively about this because I'm not a runner per se. I don't run competitively. I jog enjoyably. I am a joyful jogger, you know. I've got this own, my own sort of trot, but it's not fast, you know. But you think about it and people who are real runners, man, they go after it, right? I mean, they go on diets, they, they do all kinds of crazy stuff, they get up early in the morning, they run when it's negative 18, they go, 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 go. And you're like, why are you doing this? And they're like, well, I just want to win, right? And the rest of us, we have our own motivations, whether it's just, you know, to get outside or be alone in the quiet time for a while or to enjoy the fresh air or get some stress out or whatever. But if you do anything at all like that, in the end, you're driven by something whether it is the actual 
prize of winning or just the joy of being outside, the stress relief or quality of life or whatever it provides for you, you are driven. There is a reason you do it. And the Apostle Paul is saying here, look, you know, I believe in this thing, but you know what keeps me going when I'm cold, when I'm hungry, and everything else is when I focus on that prize. And I realize that whatever it is I have to cut, whatever it is I have to give up, whatever it is that has to get out of my life is worth less than that which I'm pursuing. In other words, what I pursue is so much more valuable than what I have to give up that it motivates me to give up everything all the time. The apostle is after his prize, and so that's why he says, run, run, that you may obtain it. Now let me give you three, three little ways in which he uh, runs. He is disciplined, he is intentional, and he's flexible. He's disciplined, and he's intentional, and he is flexible. Look, we've kind of already hinted at this already. You've got to be disciplined, you've got to be willing to sacrifice, you've got to be willing to give it up. You're never going to win a race if you don't. You're never going to get the prize. You have to sacrifice. Second of all, he's intentional. Look, he's looking with sort of a godly tunnel vision. He's saying, hey, I am so focused that no distraction is going to come into my view. I am going. I am I'm full bore, 100%, straight ahead. You know, nothing is going to detract from this. And finally, he's flexible. Um, in Paul's world, there's two very distinct ethnic groups. There are Jews and non-Jews. And there is a world of difference between them. Holiday celebrations, food, clothing, uh, you know, uh, uh, how they treat each other, how they think of one another, social status, everything. I mean, it is night and day, the difference between these two people. They couldn't be more separate. The Apostle Paul is basically saying, hey, in order to reach both groups then, I have to be extremely flexible because when I go into one community, what works there is going to fall flat in the other. And so I'm willing to bend over backwards to reach these people for the sake of the gospel. And if you need an example, just look at Timothy and his circumcision. Now, this is a grown man. And he's going along with the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle says, hey, um, we're going into a Jewish area. And you, you, know, you, had a, you had a Greek father, and so you didn't get circumcised. But uh, you need to be circumcised. <laughs> I imagine Timothy's just like, whoa, hang on a second here, Paul. What's going on? I thought you just got into a big thing with Peter about how, you know, in, at one point, you know, thank you. All right. Right on. I thought you just got into it with Peter about how circumcision wasn't necessary for salvation. The apostle is going to say, you know what? You're right. It's not necessary for salvation. But if it becomes an obstacle to these people, I want you to be willing to go through with it. Yes, it's going to hurt. Yes, it's going to be an inconvenience. Yes, it won't be pleasant, but you've got to be willing to do it. And so here we are and we look at this question again and we say, hey, um, where do I draw the line? Because, you know, should I, if I'm going to minister to people who are thieves, should I become a thief? What about people who are adulterers? Should I visit a strip club? Should I go to bars? How far do I need to go in order to reach people with the gospel? And what I would say to you is this, and it's the same grid that we applied to the will of God last week applies here. And so you walk through these questions again and you say, first of all, is it a sin? If it's a sin, then you don't do it. If it is not a sin, then you ask yourself, okay, does it compromise the gospel in any way? Is it in bounds? Is it cultural? Is just this a cultural thing? 
Because if by doing this, I am communicating the wrong message, then I need to stop. So, for example, if a headscarf says, I am a Muslim, then you take it off. If Timothy, being circumcised, would have communicated the message that I must be circumcised in order to be saved, I think the Apostle Paul would have said, don't be circumcised. But he was doing it because it's a cultural thing and he didn't want cultural barriers to get in the way. So, is it a sin? Is it cultural? If not, what will bring the most glory to God and what will advance the gospel? This is the questions you've got to ask. And so it's the same with any other race. Look, if you're running to win, there is a lane and there is a path. If you take shortcuts, if you go out of bounds, if you, you know, use artificial um, enhancements to make you run faster or stronger, then you are disqualified because you've gone outside the bounds. The apostle says, hey, this is the way I'm operating in Christianity. I am full bore pursuing the prize. I'm willing to do whatever it takes to win as long as it's in bounds. Because why? Because I don't want to be disqualified for the prize. Yes, I will still get to go to heaven, but I will lose my reward. I don't want to lose my reward. I want to win the prize. That's why I'm running for an eternal, imperishable prize. And so I am going to do whatever it takes as, as far as I have to go. I'm willing as long as it's in bounds and it advances the gospel. This is the apostle's passion, and I'm praying for our church that it will become our passion as well. So let me give you some practical advice, just three things that will help you um, move down this path. The first one is this, is that you need to develop a love for others um, that will motivate you to get beyond your own rights. In other words, you've got to love them so much that you're willing to give it up, whether it's meat, whether it's money, whether it's clothes, whether it's whatever, that you're willing to say, hey, their good is more important than my rights, and I'm willing to sacrifice that on their behalf. You've got to uh, develop and cultivate a genuine motivation and love for other people. Finally, and secondly, you also have to be focused on uh, the eternal rewards. Look, focus on the prize. Don't get distracted. And finally, it, a natural desire to advance the gospel. This, is, this should be native to your Christian life. This is what saved you, and this should motivate you to move forward and try to help others as well. In the end, it's difficult. It's hard. You have to sacrifice. You have to give something up. But in the end, it's worth it. So I look back on that summer, and I think about my experience lifting weights I'm really glad I did. You know, it was, it was neat to see the process. Obviously, nothing ever became of my basketball career. But at the same time, I learned how life works in a lot of ways. And that is you see something that is worth pursuing. You decide and determine that you're going to go after it. And then you say, you know what, I'm willing to sacrifice in order to get there. And that is basically the li- way life works. And the apostle wants to say that transfers to your Christianity as well. Don't get focused on the short term, but have an eternal perspective and look at the end goal. Look at the end game and pursue that. And ask yourself the question, how much am I willing to give up? What am I willing to do to make the cut to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ? James says it like this. In conclusion, he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. And when the chief shepherd appears, you too, church, you too, Midland, will receive the unfading crown of glory. 
Father, we're so thankful for your promise of eternal rewards and especially for your gospel, which makes it possible. Lord, please help us to pursue that. So easy it is to get distracted and let other things get in the way as we are busy. And that is clearly one of the enemy's uh, best weapons to fight against us. Lord, I pray that you would give us a clear vision, that you would, you would you just show us the end goal, that you would clarify our path and ca- cause us to pursue you and pursue the gospel and proclaim it with all our might. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.